Welcome to the Unriveted Podcast, where we talk about technology and the intersections of digital transformation, artificial intelligence, and of course, people. Today is a special day for us. So John, why don't you share why it's a special day? All right, Martin. Well, it's always a special day with you. So uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> it's a special, a different special kind of day today. So we are joined with a special guest, Peter Giovannis, who is the head of data strategy and AI analytics at Winston and Strawn LLP, located in the windiest city in the world, Chicago, Illinois. So uh, I, I want to turn it over to you, Peter. But first, I want to say, um, we're just give a little intro on yourself and, and let us know who you are and, and how you got to where you are. And I think an intriguing thing that we would touch on during that time is just let us know how does one go from a, you know, an analytics and big data career um, all the way to getting your, your JD and working in a law firm. And uh, I don't think we've ever had anyone uh, as unique as you as our guests before. So uh, I'll turn it over to you and, and we'll go from there. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, well, let me just start at the beginning. I actually started my career as a naval officer. I did eight years active duty, uh, mostly in the West Coast, San Francisco and San Diego with two deployments. Uh, during that eight-year span, I also went back to school and picked up my MBA. So I kind of think of that as chapter one. And then chapter two of my career started off doing consulting work at major consulting firms like Accenture and PwC. My area of expertise at that time was data and enterprise reporting and data warehousing. Later, I picked on predictive analytics and artificial intelligence. And I guess toward the tail end of that 20-year span, I had the midlife crisis. So in hindsight, I probably should have bought that red Italian sports <laughs> car. But uh, what I decided to do was go to law school full time while I continue to work and raise my family. And part of it was in consulting, I was selling a lot of work to the business, data and analytical work. And I found myself in front of the general counsel more often than not. And I felt like I was going into battle unarmed. So the original goal was, let me just pick up a contract law uh, and, and, you know, at least educate myself so I know where these questions are coming from. How can I better prepare and anticipate them? And what I found was first year of law school was indeed contracts and criminal law and tort law. I loved it. It was like solving puzzles. They're absolutely, that analytical thinking that we use in data science absolutely applies for the law. And I just absolutely immersed myself in it. And it was a challenge that I wanted to undertake. Um, for me, it was a four-year program, not a three-year program, because I was going, they call it half-time, but it felt like full-time, my God. Um, so long story short, that kind of set me up to chapter three, where I am now. So I have the distinction of being, if not the first, one of the first JD MBA data scientists ever hired by uh, an AMLAW 100, meaning one of the 100 largest law firms in the U.S. And as you uh, alluded to, my title is Head of Data Strategy, AI, and Analytics. I've also taken on additional responsibilities as kind of the de facto innovation officer or R&D officer as well. So all things that are now legal tech, anything that has to do with artificial intelligence or predictive analytics, I'm kind of at the forefront of doing that. And the last thing I'll end with is um, it's been a great run. The last couple of years, I've got a lot of industry recognition, including Legal Innovator of the Year and some other associated awards. So it's been, it's been wonderful. Great. That's, that's awesome, Peter. Um, we can go all over the place here and, and, and 
you can share as much as you would like. And, you know, I like to start off with probably a, a, an easy, easy question, and then uh, maybe we can tr uh, trade back and forth. But uh, are there any ethical concerns uh, associated with using AI in general uh, in the legal profession? And how can these be addressed? Very topical question right now. And you can imagine with uh, ChatGPT being released at the end of November and everyone starting to wonder how it could impact their business, specifically in the legal field. Legal has kind of traditionally been a laggard for technology, but for AI, mm -hmm. the possibilities here um, are really exciting from making attorneys more efficient to bringing down the cost, legal cost. And I think even more importantly, we talk about access to justice, allowing more people access at a relatively more affordable price point. But from an ethical standpoint, there's a couple things that absolutely stand out. So first of all, attorneys have an ethical responsibility to their clients. The American Bar Association says attorneys owe a duty of confidentiality, meaning, and this is from an artificial intelligence chat GPT perspective, when someone puts into chat GPT or another large language model a query, that information ultimately is tokenized and sent to like an open AI. But there's a question that remains. Is that information used to further train the model? Or I would argue, is there a possibility that a third person, third party person, perhaps an open AI would have access to that query? And that presents an ethical issue for attorneys and their clients in that, have we broken attorney client privilege by allowing it to a third person? So that's one ethical duty. They also have um, a duty for zealous representation and they have a duty of competence. So there's a lot of ethical duties that attorneys are working through right now. And personally at our firm, I champion technology like this, and we are working with our own general counsel to come up with mm -hmm. kind of a governance plan. So that's kind of the other ethical aspect of it. Several companies and organizations have made policy that says we're not allowing any employees to use ChatGPT in their professional life or from our network. But I don't know if that's realistic. There are a lot of upsides mm -hmm. here. So coming out with a governance policy and explaining what, what the do's and don'ts are, I think that all will kind of plays into this. And then these other part of the ethical duties that we talk about is the bias, right? Depending on unintended bias or perhaps bias that was built in, how do we negate that? And how do we make sure that we have full transparency for what the model is doing and the recommendations that's going forth? There are probably 10 others we can get into, um, and, and I'll, I'll present that at a, at a future date for you. That's awesome. I, as a similar train of thought, but a, a slightly different direction, what could be the ramification of a lawyer? Let's, let's fast forward five years. What could be the ramification of a, uh, in the legal world of a lawyer not using the capabilities that we, we see today and privatizing it moving forward? I mean, using the power of, of this generative technology. So I would say in the most extreme example, and again, we're forward looking and looking into that crystal ball five plus years, but I would argue it's possible for an attorney or a law firm to be charged with professional malpractice if they're not using the technology uh, in a way, again, I use the word zealous representation to best defend their client. And there's a saying going around, and I know it's in a lot of different industries, but in law, the way it's told is AI will never replace attorneys but it will replace attorneys that don't use AI. 
So we are at the AOL stage of ChatGPT <laughs> and the capabilities, but look at what will happen. I mean, just in six months, it's amazing the, the exponential growth and the adoption. I, I, I fear what will happen in five years. I don't think we can even foresee where we'll be. Interesting. Again, I, the, the prompt in my head just had the soundbite of, <laughs> welcome, you have representation. <laughs> I don't even do the modem. The, uh, the modem. <laughs> I, I think you should trademark that, Martin, you know, and uh, that, that could be that could be a billion dollar idea. <laughs> For all um, listening. Perfect. For all listening. You heard that first on Unriveted Media. I know. There you go. Media attorneys. <laughs> I, I got well, so I, I like where this is going. Um, and I got a couple of questions I'll throw your way, Peter. So we all understand that you know, chat GPT, um, and we keep talking about chat GPT like it's the first iteration of a large language model that's come around. And it's you know, we had chat, we had GPT 3, GPT 2, GPT 1, we had BERT. Uh, which I think was kind of the beginning of all those. And and I believe that what I heard was OpenAI built ChatGPT in order to use as a tool to train GPT-4. Um, maybe I'm, I'm misrepresenting what I heard. Um, you tell me you're the lawyer. <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, the, the topic comes up about the ethics and the bias and, and, and the... Um, the fact that these large language models, uh, you know, sometimes they produce text that's bigoted or, or you know, it's affecting, um, uh, you know, uh, underrepresented minority groups in a in a in a bad light. And and honestly, you know, the what gets blamed for that is the model, but the real blame is the fact that the model was trained on data collected from the hive mind of the world population on the internet. Um, so really the model is just reflecting the inherent bias and bigotry of, of humans, unfortunately. So, you know, thinking about that, uh, and maybe this is more of you putting on your, your data and, and analytics uh, hat, um, but what do you see as a way in the future to to circum, you know, to get by that, to be able to build an AI system uh, like an LLM or something in the future that inherently does not have that level of bias, or are we always going to have it and we're going to have to create some backend like filter with a uh, you know human in the loop, so to speak, to check for that? Is there any way to avoid that just in the training data alone, or would we could significantly limit ourselves from the data that we need? to build these types of models in the first place? Great question and great several questions. I think there's a lot <laughs> in there to unwind, um, but a couple of things come to mind. So you had talked about kind of the unintended consequences of training a large language model. So the way I understand it, and I think the way that OpenAI describes it is ChatGPT 3.5 and ultimately ChatGPT 4 has been trained on a corpus that includes the entire internet. So that also means to your point, some less than quality sources are also in there, and that could be part of that unintended bias. So as far as being able to minimize that going forward, I think there's two or three things that are already being talked about in, in the legal profession 
the vendor we're using is actually doing these. So the first one to your point about human in the loop, they call that human reinforcement training. For law, we're calling that attorney reinforcement training. So as you are building a vertically specific large language model, you are getting subject matter experts in there to weigh in and basically correct the model, give it a thumbs up or thumbs down as it gives replies. And if you do that 50,000 times, right, you can kind of get that human in the loop um, feedback to minimize mm -hmm. that type of bias going forward. Second part, and again, I'm speaking from legal, but I've also seen this happen now in financial services. Bloomberg announced something called Bloomberg GPT using their financial data. In legal, we're using a, a company called Case Text and their product called CoCounsel. But if you can imagine, the large language model has been trained on this corpus. And by doing so, it gives it the ability to basically read and write, and I'll kind of say in quotation marks, understand language. But the next step is can we? augment its learning on a specific vertical corpus. So in legal, it would be all the legal documents, all the holdings, all the case law that it, mm -hmm. it didn't get from the internet, but it's getting from a very reliable source. And again, adding that human in the loop for the reinforcement training. So that to me kind of adds these guardrails. And then to minimize this ability to hallucinate and make things up, you would basically program to say, if don't look at your general large language model for the answer, but focus on this very narrow corpus that we've given you. And if you can't find the answer, don't don't reply. Mm -hmm. I'd rather have nothing. Because you can imagine for court, uh, putting up a case that's completely fictitious, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> John versus Martin, the case doesn't <laughs> exist, right? But you're, you're quoting it as saying this is the name <laughs> of our case. And you present that to the court or to the opposing counsel and you'll just get destroyed. Again, we talk about professional malpractice. This would this would get you there very closely. So those are two things that I'm thinking. And the third one is a new technology that just kind of came across my desk and they're calling it um, generative adversarial networks. And the mm -hmm. idea is basically, uh, let's say it was a contract or something that had personal information in it. Instead of sending that to the large language model, mask it ahead of time. So instead of mm -hmm. the company being completely made up, Tesla, maybe we put Acme Core. And instead of mm -hmm. putting your first name, we make something up, Mr. Miller, whatever it may be. Um, so that's a possibility that I'm seeing as well. So I think those three things in combination um, will help to get us through the concerns about biasy and erroneous information and get us to the point where we can get more mm, veracity or trustworthiness with these large language models. That, yeah, that, and that makes sense. You know, the data masking part, um, you know, I, I obviously that if you don't include information in the training data that could create bias or hallucinations, uh, as they're being called now, where it's just like fabricating something out of air, Martin, John versus Martin, trial of the century, right. <laughs> coming to a theater near you. But, um, you know, also I think the the narrow focus. LLM, because ChatGPT, like you said, is trained on a corpus of data that covers, you know, a very large chunk uh, of the internet. And I mean, I don't think they've revealed the number of training parameters um, or weights and biases that are included in that. But I think ChatGPT or GPT three was like 175 billion. So this one's probably it's somewhere up in the trillion. Yeah, in the trillions. So right. narrow LLMs. And I think that that also might be, you know, a beneficial application from a 
business sense, right? You know, if, if a business is trying to take jet, chat GPT in its current state and plug it into some tool in their infrastructure and have it answer the questions that business, you know, people in the business are looking for, uh, it probably isn't going to work the same way unless it's completely retrained to be focused specifically on a repository of documents or information specific to that business and maybe specific to that industry. So that, good, good stuff. And that's a use case I think is really exciting. And it probably will be the next chapter in this evolution is you described, John, um, I'll use a law firm example because that's what I'm most relevant right now to me. But if you can imagine within the law firm, we have a document management system, which has well over 5 million documents. So think of this as all our contracts and our intellectual property and different legal documents that have been drafted. But if somehow you could use a large language model and point it at that corpus of documents, I would argue you'd be able to kind of pick up each law firm kind of has its own style and voice and tone and, you know, best practices. But it's possible mm -hmm. that that large language model could be trained on that corpus, pick that up, and then think about the efficiency you have as a young associate. I don't have to look for a template. I have a large language model there that's been trained on my firm's best practices, and I can use that to draft a contract or different legalese or different motions. I think that's a huge efficiency saver, and I think the quality of the deliverables is going to go up. Absolutely. This is um, this is a topic I think we can spend a lot of time on. I I do have a, a kind of tangential area is on perhaps uh, rights or ownership of intellectual property or artistic property, which is also a hot topic. Uh, you know, music generation, art generation, storytelling, very similar uh, in in thought process. It's creative to who owns the rights to and when the generative engine creates something, you know, it's trained on a wide variety of information. And so Martin wants to write a book on best legal practices. You know, who owns that? Who owns the property of that, of that book once I create it? This is a very topical question right now that the courts are <laughs> absolutely struggling with, right? I've seen instances, uh, there's a famous case going on right now where Getty images. They're the ones that have all the mm -hmm. stock photos that you can use and you purchase, right? Yeah. What if the Dolly 2 or some other model was trained on their pictures or their photos or their images and now creates some on demand? You would argue the model would not be able to do that without the training, which was copyrighted material. So this is really that black box area. And the courts are struggling through this. From the last readings that I have, the courts have kind of leaning toward there must be some type of human involvement in there. If it's completely generated by AI, they're, they're saying it's not able to be copyrighted. But that doesn't answer your first question, Martin, was what if I had copyrighted material that was used in training? So then you go back to, John, your original assumption about mm -hmm. ChatGPT being trained on the whole entire corpus of what we would call the collective Internet. Mm -hmm. I would argue that a lot of those websites and articles and other material may have at the very fine print kind of uh, rules of use, like this cannot mm -hmm. be used for training or this cannot be used without our consent or this cannot be used. This is copyrighted material. So it really opens up and back to your first question about the ethical implications here, too. I think this is wait to see. I don't think we've got an answer yet. 
And it's just amazing how quick this has gone from a great idea to now being at the forefront of every news story that you you read. This has um, been wonderful, Peter. I think we should run a wrap here. And uh, thank you for joining our Unriveted podcast. And maybe uh, you can do a plug again for yourself here and, uh, you know, mention your, your, your law firm's name and we'll, we'll share that with the, uh, the audience when we publish. Sure. Again, thank you again. My name is Peter Giovannis. Uh, I live in the Chicago area and I work for the law firm of Winston and Strawn. Awesome. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for being on Unriveted. My pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. You bet. Thank you.